Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Peter, thank you very much. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading from Ephesians chapter 1, and let's pray for God's help as we look together at his word. Ephesians 1, verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. Our Father, that is our prayer tonight. We ask that you would give us, uh, by your spirit, a wisdom, a wisdom and revelation as we look at your words. Father, we long that we may know you better tonight. And as we know you better, we may be able to love you and to serve you in a way which brings you great joy and great honor. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder if you've heard the story of Thelma Howard. She was a humble housekeeper earning a very modest wage. Every Christmas and on her birthdays, her employer would invite her into his office and give her a gift. Um, It wasn't uh, cash. Uh, He just gave her a a plain-looking piece of paper every Christmas, every birthday. When Thelma retired, she moved to a a very small, unimpressive two-bedroom bungalow And she lived the rest of her days in relative poverty. When she died, her relatives came to sort out uh, her affairs and the estate. And uh, they were amazed to find that Thelma Howard died an incredibly rich lady. You see, her employer was Walt Disney. And every year, he had given her stocks in the Walt Disney Company. And by the end of her life, in today's money, Thelma Howard had $37 million worth of shares in Walt Disney. And yet it seems that in her life, 
Thelma had no idea how much she actually had. She had no idea how rich she really was. We might wonder how this could possibly happen. We might think that that is an extreme example of one particular person. And yet, tonight, we're going to discover that there's a very real danger for us as Christians that we fail to understand just how rich we are in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Last week, we began looking at this uh, wonderful letter of Ephesians, and we read some incredible words from Ephesians 1 verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Before time began, we were chosen in love. We were adopted, predestined. We have been forgiven, redeemed. In Christ, we now have a a new purpose, a new future, and we are heirs of a wonderful inheritance. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have uh, part of that plan. Uh, We have a part to play in it. Verse 10, and Paul says that there's a plan at work in the world to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Uh, We are caught up in this master plan for the world. We have a purpose, a direction in our lives. We are greatly blessed to be in Christ. In fact, uh, we have far more than Thelma Howard ever had. It's just, it doesn't always feel like it. We'll see in the coming weeks that that Paul himself writes from prison, in chains, probably in Rome, uh, facing death. He writes to the Ephesian Christians who almost certainly were involved in in a very small little church gathering. And we know that in around AD 60, in that part of Asia Minor, uh, the, the Roman Empire was the big influence. Uh, there were various gods worshipped in the local temples. The, the culture of the day was a pagan culture. Uh, people were, were living in the moment for pleasures in the immediate, in the short term. And to be a Christian would have felt like you were part of something very small. It would have felt like you're going against the flow of the world and of the culture. And I guess we might feel something similar on Monday morning as we head off to school. Or head off to the office. We might know that we have been given every spiritual blessing. But as we stand up to the world around us. And we live different lives. And we don't fit in culturally in terms of our values. It often doesn't feel like it. And so having outlined all the tremendous blessings we have in Christ. What does Paul do next? Does he sit back and relax and say well I've done my job. I've told you about these blessings. I'm finished. No, do you see what he does? Paul gets on his knees and he begins to pray. Because Paul knows that there is a very real danger that Christians fail to understand how rich we truly are in Christ. Look at how his prayer begins there in verse 15. He says, for this reason... What is the reason he's talking about? He's talking about all of Ephesians 1, 
verses 3 to 14, he's talking about this wonderful news of every blessing in Christ. He's talking about how the Ephesians have been caught up in this eternal master plan for the world. And he says, for this reason, because I know that you are part of this plan, this is why I now pray. And he begins rightly by thanking the one who has brought all these blessings. He thanks God, verse 15. Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Uh, just as a quick aside, uh, notice how important to Paul love is. I wonder if we were to visit another church, perhaps on holiday, and we were and trying to make sense of what we saw at that church as we left and went home to our lunch. What would make us praise God for what we saw at that church? Uh, would it be uh, passionate singing? Would it be uh, biblical prayers or, or faithful teaching of the scriptures? All good things. But notice what Paul says. He picks out love. He praises God that these Ephesian Christians love one another. And I wonder if we need to recapture the utter importance of gospel-motivated, faith-filled love for other Christians. So Paul begins his great prayer by, by thanking God. And now we come to the very heart of the prayer. For Christians who have already everything in Christ, Paul prays this prayer in verse 17. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. You see, Paul has told these Ephesians that they have every blessing in Christ, but now he prays that they may know God better. What does he mean? Just a few years ago, I went skiing for the first time. And uh, I was very excited about going skiing. I, I love snow. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to check the weather forecast uh, in the winter almost every day to see if there's any chance of snow coming in the next three or four days. Actually, I still do that. Um, but there you go. Um, there might be some this week, by the way. Um, but anyways. Um, but I was so excited about snow and skiing that I, I prepared for the trip. I um, got my hands on a book and uh, I got a DVD. And I watched and I filled my head with knowledge about how to ski the perfect turn and how to carve my way down the slopes. And I, and I left on this holiday, uh, arrived uh, in the resort with my head packed full of knowledge. I was ready to go. I knew how to ski. And then the next morning I stepped out on the slopes. And the very first thought I had was, wow, it's really slippery. Um, <laughs> profound. Um, and it was so slippery that I forgot everything I had learned. Uh, that, that first day was a complete disaster. I fell over, I stood around, I couldn't control myself. I, I hated it. Um, you see, on the slope, I forgot all my knowledge. You see, the kind of knowledge I had at that point was just head knowledge, just theory. But when it came to the actual slope, I didn't know anything about skiing. You see, there's a huge difference between head knowledge the facts and figures, and real, on-the-ground, heart knowledge. And as Christians, we might be able to give 
uh, a great rundown of all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. We might be able to quote word for word Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, heirs, a new purpose, a new identity, a glorious future. But do we really know what we're saying? Do we really know the truth out there on the slopes, if you like? Monday morning in the school playground, talking to our friends, in the office. What Paul is praying for here is that our knowledge of God would not simply be an academic understanding that we have in our heads, but rather something far more. Look at how verse 18 helps us understand this. Paul goes on to pray, verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I think verse 18, uh, uh, here Paul's not praying for, for a new thing, a, a different prayer. He, verse 18 has a sense in the original that he, he's explaining in verse 18 how verse 17 happens. In other words, we know God better by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. I think that's how verse 18 follows on from verse 17. We know God better by having our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Now this sounds slightly odd, this talk about having... Uh, the eyes of our hearts. What does Paul mean by that? You know, we, obviously we have, we have physical eyes on our heads through which we observe and understand and take on board the world around us. But here Paul says that we have eyes that belong to our hearts. In the scriptures, our hearts are, are the seats of our, of our lives. They're where we control uh, our, our emotions, our attitudes. They're, it's where we make our decisions. It's the control center of our lives. And Paul says that that center, our hearts, has a way of viewing the world. It looks out on the world. It it digests what it sees around in the world. And what our eyes see impacts what our heart produces. Do you wonder why some mornings you wake up feeling grumpy or annoyed or you you have no patience? Uh, Why you feel like you want to shout at everyone? Uh, why you want to serve yourself and not others, uh, why you uh, lack joy or hope. Now, sometimes our circumstances can have a huge impact on our mood, and, and, I, and I know that. But our hearts are where our emotions come from, and our hearts are where we make our decisions about life. And what we choose to focus the heart of our eyes on has a huge impact on what our hearts produce. And what Paul is saying here is that he wants the eyes of our hearts to understand properly, to look out at the world and see truth rightly. He wants God to uh, enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Uh, If you like, he wants us to be able to look at the world and understand how Ephesians 1 verse 3 uh, works around us in practice, to see how we do have every spiritual blessing we need that not just in our heads, but in our hearts. And so Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. If I've completely lost you in the last few minutes, then let me show you what Paul means in practice. Because he then goes on to show us in very concrete terms what he means by having the eyes of our hearts enlightened. Uh, Paul picks out three big areas of life where he wants us to have good heart vision. Look how verse 18 continues. 
He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? First of all, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's the first area in which he wants the, heart, the eyes of our hearts to, 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 to see correctly, to understand God's calling, to understand the hope that he's given us. A few years ago, I was um, in Oxford Street in London. Uh, it's, a, it's a place packed full of uh, world-famous shops, uh, full of glamour and glitz. You can spend thousands in a moment in Oxford Street. And I found myself walking down the street with thousands of other people, jostling around, going in and out of shops, spending, I guess, thousands of pounds. And as, as I watched everyone tearing around, I just found myself feeling um, completely uh, out of step. It, it, it could be because I hate shopping. Uh, I, I was, I'm not sure why I was there in the first place. But I think also it was because the hope that I have as a Christian is so different from the hope that everyone else seemed to have in Oxford Street. You see, people were going in and out of shops looking for hope. They were trying to find things in the shops that would give their life hope and meaning. They are looking for possessions and material things and clothes to make them impressive and beautiful in the search for hope. That is how the hearts, their hearts saw the world. That is why they were shopping and searching for hope. But as Christians, Paul says that we have a hope that comes not from shops and material things, but from God who has called us. Our culture all around us hopes simply in the immediate, in the material. And as we watch them basing their hopes on that, it's so easy for us in our hearts, for our heart eyes to to buy into that, to think that is where we find hope, to live for those things that we see. And Paul says, no, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to understand the hope to which he has called you. Christians have a very different hope. Uh, The calling that Paul is speaking about is not a calling to a particular place or a particular job. He's talking about the one great calling to be in Christ, to be part of God's master plan for the world, to be part of God's people, his church. And we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened if we are to understand that hope, that calling. This week, I, uh, I caught the tail end of a, of a documentary one evening on TV looking at um, what it was like to spend a week on Richard Branson's private island in the Caribbean. I don't know if anyone saw it. It was a pretty terrible program, but um, I found myself completely sucked in by it. I don't normally watch those programs, by the way, but um, there I was. Uh, the island was called Neko Island. Uh, it had amazing white sandy beaches, uh, crystal clear blue waters. It was all inclusive. Um, every uh, thing you can think of was catered for on the island. And I lost count of the number of times people uh, talked about the fact that this island was paradise. It was everything you could dream of. It was uh, the best place to be in the world. And as I watched the program, I found myself being drawn to that island. I would love to be there. Wouldn't life just work there? Wouldn't it just be right there on Neko Island? That's how it looked. That's how my heart was, was starting to feel as I watched the program. Of course, it's not true. The picture being painted for us doesn't last. It's not paradise. It's not dream come true. 
The only one source of ultimate lasting hope is God's call, God's plan for us and the world. And we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened in that moment of discernment to see that that will not give us happiness and hope in the, for eternity. Of course, what we hope in will have a huge impact on how we spend our time in the present. Uh, think of two people uh, who are, are taken and put into two separate and identical rooms, and they're told that if they, uh, that they're asked to stay in the rooms for, for a shift for eight hours, uh, exactly the same rooms, and that the doors are closed, and when they're in the rooms, they're given lots of terrible things to do. You know, they're given, uh, it's, it's, it's a stuffy, cramped room. They're asked to work hard. People shout at them through loud um, megaphones through the walls. Uh, it's a horrible place to work. And to, and to one guy, uh, he's told, if you, if you last eight hours in this room, then we'll give you 10 pounds. Imagine how he feels hour after hour. He's thinking, it's not worth it. All this heat, this grief, it's not worth it. He'll give up. Imagine the second person in the same room, same conditions, same heat, and he's told, if you last the eight hours, we'll give you 10 million pounds. Well, he's going to do it, isn't he? He's going to keep going. It's worth it. If we have our hope clear in our minds, then it changes how we work in the present. It keeps us going. And Paul wants us to have, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, in a profound, deep way, a real conviction about the hope of our calling in such a way that it changes what we do in day in, day out. In the rest of the letter, we'll hear lots about what it means to be church, God's people. We'll hear that Paul says that we have, we have good works prepared for us in advance in chapter 2. Uh, we'll read in chapter 4 that uh, we should use our gift to serve the Lord. If we have our hope firmly fixed on God's calling, if we understand what God is up to in the world, then we'll want to give ourselves to these good works. We'll want to serve the body of Christ. But Paul wants us first to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, to understand the hope of God's calling. Now, that's the first area that, that Paul prays for. At second, God's inheritance. Verse 18. He says, I, I pray that also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, next, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. As God's people, as those in Christ, uh, we know that we have a glorious inheritance to look forward to. Uh, we read about it last week in verse 14 of chapter 1. We have a, a wonderful, glorious future. But Paul is not talking about our inheritance here in his prayer. He's talking about God's inheritance. He says the riches of his, God's glorious inheritance in his people. The extraordinary truth is that God's people... The church, us gathered here tonight, this bunch of people, you and me, we are God's inheritance. We are what God is looking forward to when the times have reached their fulfillment. 
This is an amazing insight into how God views us. Uh, We already know that uh, God has chosen us, that he loves us, and he has forgiven us, uh, not because we deserve it, but because of his great mercy and because of Christ's death in our place. And yet now we find that we are also God's inheritance. Uh, What is an inheritance? An inheritance is something that you receive following the death of a loved one. It is something that comes to you through sadness. And the same is true here for God. A death has occurred. But unlike most deaths, the death that has occurred is part of an eternal plan. The death that has occurred is the death of God's precious son, Jesus Christ. He died, and the fruit of his death is an inheritance for God the Father, the people of God, us here tonight. Was the death worth it? Was that tremendous wrench, the loss that the father experienced in judging his son, the great sacrifice of the son in dying on our behalf on the cross, was that death worth it? Well, the answer is yes. When God looks at his people, the church, at you and me, God says, yes, the plan is worth it. I have now an inheritance through great sadness that I will enjoy for all of eternity to come. Verse 18 is not here to make us big-headed or arrogant. How could we be when we know that it is only through the death of Christ that we have become this inheritance for God? Verse 18 is here to make us overflow with joy. It is to put our rock, a rock under our feet, knowing that we are treasured and loved by God. If only we could understand, not just in our heads, but also in our hearts, that we are God's inheritance, that God is looking forward to spending all of eternity enjoying us and rejoicing over us. If we could just grasp that with the eyes of our hearts, imagine what kind of stability it would give us in our lives. When our lives go through hard times, when the world around us thinks that we are small and insignificant, we would know that we are not small and insignificant. For the creator of the universe loves us and he cherishes us. Imagine the confidence it would give us. We needn't lie awake at night wondering, does God love me when life is not going well? And so Paul prays, he longs that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians and us here tonight would know that we are God's inheritance. There is one final thing that Paul prays for. Verse 18 again, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Well, lastly, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul wants us to know God's power. Now, what kind of power are we talking about? It's the same power, verse 20, that was able to raise Christ from the grave. The power to overcome death itself. It's the same power that raised Christ not just to life, but also to the place of ultimate glory. The place, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
And finally, it is power, verse 22, that made Christ head over the church. When we become Christians and when we step out of the culture that we used to belong to, so often it feels like we are stepping out of the place of power into a place of weakness. But no. No, Paul says that when we are in Christ, we enter a place of unbelievable power. And you can imagine these Ephesian Christians feeling so very small, so very weak, surrounded perhaps by pagan temples, by a culture that thought they were crazy. Paul says, in fact, to be a Christian is to be the one who has access to remarkable power. But is this really true? If God has made this kind of power available to us as Christians, why do we feel so weak? Why do I feel so daunted about this coming week if this power really is around for us? Why is life so complicated, so tiring, so full of difficulties? We're bound to ask that question. We're bound to wonder, is Paul really right? Can we really trust what Paul is saying? Well, I found two thoughts helpful this week as I thought about this power made available to us. The first is this, that that as Christians, we have already experienced something of this remarkable power in our past. Uh, Next week, we'll look at uh, Ephesians chapter two, and there Paul says something amazing. He says to us uh, in verse uh, four, actually we'll read from verse five, that we have been uh, made alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sins. Verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we became Christians, we followed the same path that Christ followed. We went from from death to life and from life to, to heaven, a place of glory. We are with Christ now. We have experienced, if you like, that same power already at work in our lives. And to be a Christian here tonight is to be one who has experienced immense power. And we need the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, to to understand just how big that power is, to appreciate how much it takes to take someone from death to life. And Paul says, you have already experienced that power in your life. That's the past power. But that power is not just a past event. It is an ongoing reality. It's a power, I think, given for a particular purpose. You see, God doesn't give us power to... um, help us uh, have all the traffic lights turn green on the way through if we're late for work. He doesn't give us power so that we get the, uh, the, the exam results we want. He doesn't give us power to make our life easy and happy and good. No, he gives us this power for a particular purpose. He wants us to, to live a life worthy of the calling he's given us. He wants us to have power to, to work out his master plan for the world, to be his people in a world that does, does not know God. He wants us, for example, in verse three, to, to make, sorry, in chapter four, verse three, to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirits. He wants, he wants us to be united, even if we find people difficult. He wants us to forgive and to love and to share. In five, verse 25, Paul will say to us, he'll say to husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. As a husband, how can I do that? How can I love my wife as Christ loved the church? We need power 
to do that. And Paul says there's power for that purpose. Or we'll see in Ephesians 6 in a number of weeks' time, verse 10, Paul says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And the context there is to resist uh, the evil spirits of this world, the evil one himself. God gives us his power to do a particular thing, to be his people in the world, to stand firm for him. And as we try to unite and we try to love and try to stand firm, I believe we will experience this power at work in our lives, helping us to do that. There is a very real danger that as Christians we fail to understand how rich we are in Christ. Wouldn't it be amazing if in a term's time we were able to look back and to realize that uh, throughout this term we had come to know God better. Not just in a, in a head knowledge kind of way but in a deep profound heart kind of way in a way which which changed our attitudes and our fears and our concerns and our joys wouldn't it be amazing if we committed to pray for one another like Paul prayed perhaps in our small groups imagine if we just committed to pray for one person in our small groups imagine if we knew that one person was praying for us this prayer in Ephesians 1 every day for this term it would make an extraordinary difference we would know God better What a wonderful thing to aim for this time. Let's pray. Father, we know that our hearts are so complicated. We know our hearts so quickly wander and stray that they are places of of unbelief. Uh, Father, we pray for your mercy. We pray that your spirit of wisdom and revelation would, would open the eyes of our hearts to, to show us just how much we have in Christ. Father, we long for hearts that are profoundly convinced of the truth of the gospel, profoundly convinced of all that Christ has won for us at the cross. We long to be people who are able to live for you and to work out your purposes in the world. Please enlighten our hearts, we pray with the wonderful blessings we have in Christ. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.